You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. pick up this morning's passage, Paul has expressed up to this point in the letter uh, to the church in Colossae that his prayers are, uh, for them are always filled with both gratitude and intercession. Gratitude to God, having heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. Faith and love motivated by heavenly hope. Going back to verse 5 of chapter 1, the hope laid up for us in heaven, the fountain from which faith and love flow. As we talked about for a few weeks now, the gospel, not only the good news of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, yes and amen to that, but to the good news of the real, objective, future promises of God that await the children of God. The Colossians, having heard and received that good news from Epaphras, along with so many others in the days of the early church, the good news, verse 6 of chapter 1, of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Never to be abandoned, no matter what the competing voices may whisper with their empty promises. And they're always whispering. Something for which Paul never ceases to pray through his words of intercession, paired with his prayers of gratitude for the Colossian church. Having heard of their faith and love, never ceasing to pray that they might experience these things in increased measure. Filled with the knowledge of God's will, verse 9, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Paul's hope for them and for us, a deep and lasting understanding of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which works itself out in Christ-honoring obedience and patient endurance. Helps to make sense, going back to last week, of this wondrous Colossian hymn of Christ situated right in the middle of chapter 1. Declaring the centrality and supremacy of the Lord Jesus. The invisible God made visible, verse 15. Sovereign and supreme in rule and reign over all of creation. The word through whom all things were spoken into existence, verse 16. That he might receive honor, glory, and praise. The one who upholds the entirety of the created order by the word of his power. Verse 17, governing all that he sustains toward a full and final consummation for his glory. The one from whom we, the church, derive our life, our nourishment, our growth. Verse 18, as we hold fast to him, the head of the body, sovereign Lord of his beloved. The risen king crowned with glory preeminent in all things, having the first place, surpassing all others. The eternal God, verse 19, who without ceasing to be God became flesh, that his body might someday be broken, that his blood might someday be shed. His sacrificial death, verse 20, securing a peace and reconciliation as vast as the cosmos. And at the same time, verse 21, as intimate as God and a single sinner reconciled. Friendship, intimacy, and peace with the living God where there was once only alienation and hostility. But for the grace of God, but for the blood of Jesus. Someday, verse 22, to be presented his beloved before the Father, holy and blameless. 
like a lamb without blemish or spot because of the true lamb, Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is credited to sinners like you and me by faith. The hope of the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ, never to be abandoned, verse 23. Again, no matter what the competing voices may whisper with their hollow words, their empty promises, which helps to make sense as to why the Apostle Paul will come back to these glorious truths over and over again throughout the course of this letter. As Paul understood that fixing our eyes on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is transformative. As Paul says elsewhere, in his letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, seeing and savoring him, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That without beholding, there is no becoming. Without seeing and savoring, there is no sanctification. In the words of one scholar, Paul understood And this will help to frame everything he's going to say in this morning's passage about his life, his sufferings. Paul understood that when Jesus consumes our focus, everything else is put into its proper perspective. Everything. Which is why Paul could declare, picking up this morning's passage, chapter 1, verse 24 of Colossians. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings. It's fairly easy for us to rejoice, most of us, in our our achievements, to rejoice in our health, to rejoice in our prosperity. As a part of a culture that places a high value on convenience, abundance, and comfort. You can get everything in, in our cultural context. You can get it in a big cup with an insulated sleeve. The idea of rejoicing in our sufferings is so incredibly foreign to us, isn't it? I mean, to be sure, Paul's not talking about suffering simply for the sake of suffering, nor is he, does he have in mind the kind of suffering we experience as a result of our, our sin. Rather, Paul rejoices in the sufferings he experiences For the sake of the advancement of the gospel. For the sake of the building up of the body of Christ, the church. That's the kind of suffering specifically that Paul has in mind. So keep that in mind as we work through this passage this morning. Paul having come face to face with the light of God's glory and grace in Jesus Christ. Given a meaningful role to play in the unfolding plan of God's redemptive purpose. In my flesh, Paul says... I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That one phrase in most commentaries takes up at least half a dozen pages. People wrestling back and forth. What is he talking about? Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? It's not to say that Paul sees the redemptive sufferings of Jesus to be deficient, as if Paul's suffering or our own suffering might add to the atoning work of Christ. I mean, going back to last week, Paul spoke of peace and reconciliation rippling through the cosmos, far as the curse is found. Verse 20, by the blood of his cross, God and sinners reconciled. We who were once far off brought near. Verse 22, in his body of flesh by his death. 
As Paul will go on to say in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Having forgiven us some of our trespasses? No, all. Canceling a portion of the record of debt that we might add to later on down the road? No. Canceling the fullness of the record of debt that stood against us. Our sin record. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Past tense. The sufficiency of the atoning work of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, affirmed not only in the book of Colossians, but outside of the book of Colossians within the scriptures. See it in the book of Hebrews over and over again. I'll give you one example. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. And every priest, the author of Hebrews, speaking of the Old Testament priesthood, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. No more work to be done, seated, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." Jesus himself cried out from the cross, It is finished. Having offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Our afflictions adding nothing to the merit of Christ's redemptive sufferings. Which, by the way, in the broader scope of Paul's letter to the Colossian church, that's the very thing he's pushing back on. He he would be refuting his own logic to say, let's add to Christ's Redemptive sufferings. Those false teachers were seeking to add to the finished work of of Jesus. So what does Paul mean? In my flesh, he says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I'll give you a couple of possibilities here that make the best argument. Perhaps Paul has in mind something evangelistic in, in nature meaning that we reveal something of Christ's suffering in our own suffering, making the redemptive sufferings of Jesus real for people as we suffer for the sake of the gospel. It's where several scholars land, a great many in fact, and perhaps that's exactly what Paul has in mind. We surely reveal something of Christ's suffering in our own suffering when it's for the sake of the gospel or the building up of the church. But perhaps... Paul is referencing the the intimate union between Christ and his church. The intimate union between the suffering servant and his suffering people. I think one of the best places to go to maybe help make sense of, of what I mean here would be Paul's very own story of his conversion. If you go to Acts chapter 9 verses 3 through 5. Paul tell, or Luke tells us, I should say, as the author of Acts. Now, as he, Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
This is one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? One might argue that Saul hadn't been persecuting Jesus at all. Rather, he'd been persecuting the church. And yet, that's not how Jesus sees it. So united to his bride, Jesus is, that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus himself. Highlighting the, the richness and depth of what it means to abide in Christ. To be in intimate union with Jesus. It's one of the great doctrines that that Paul would go on to emphasize in his writings. Including the book of Colossians. Filled with the language of union with Christ. You see it over and over again. In him. In Christ. In Jesus. Paul writes it over and over and over again. Sometimes with him. In Colossians itself we've already seen it. Chapter 1 verse 18. He is the head of the body the church. As a couple weeks from now, Paul will go on to round out that sort of imagery. Chapter 2, verse 19. He's the one from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Or as Paul will go on to say in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Having been buried with him, raised with him, made alive together with him. Perhaps Paul has in mind the the intimate union between the suffering servant and his suffering people so that, and consider this, this is incredible as it pertains to the intimacy of our relationship with Jesus, so that to suffer for the sake of the gospel is a suffering that Jesus counts as his own when you experience it. Just as he counted Saul's persecution of the church as his own. Either way, whatever Paul means by that phrase is absolutely wondrous. Helping us to to understand how Paul could possibly rejoice in his sufferings for the advancement of the gospel, for the building up of the church. Either he saw himself as revealing something of Jesus' suffering in and through his own suffering, his very own afflictions, a Christ-exalting opportunity to put the jewel of the gospel on display, or he saw his own sufferings through the lens of such intimate union with Jesus, such an abiding relationship with Christ, that to suffer for the sake of the gospel, the building of the church, is a suffering that Jesus says, that's mine. I count it as mine. Either way, giving good reason to rejoice in our sufferings, particularly those we experience for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which, verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." Paul, a minister of the gospel, not by choice, he says. Unlike the self-appointed false teachers in Colossae, his ministry a stewardship, verse 25, 
given to him from God for the church. And not only his, his ministry, but his message too, not of his choosing. Not the word of Paul, again, verse 25, but the word of God. Again, unlike the self-appointed false teachers in Colossae with their self-formulated philosophy and empty deceit, to use the language of chapter 2, verse 8. Appointed by God, Paul was, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, verse 26, but now revealed to his saints. Not meaning something mysterious, per se, as in some sort of secret knowledge accessible to an elite few, That's what Paul's pushing back on in part. Rather, the riches of the glory of the mystery, verse 27, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's take Christ in you first. The mystery of God intimately present in the lives of his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, I think that that helps perhaps to make that argument of what it means that we're filling up in, in what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Here getting into that intimate union and abiding relationship with Jesus sort of imagery and language. Christ in you. The mystery of the presence of God in the lives of his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and let this blow your mind. The same Jesus described in those glorious lyrics with which we sat last week. Living and abiding in his people. Ephesians 3.17, Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. Now, if you're like me, that, that feels a little bit above my pay grade mentally. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to, to, to bring that home in a way that my, my heart awakens to make sense of it all. And so I'll just share with you a simple statement that was made in one of the readings that I sat with this past week in studying for this passage and the preaching of it, which says this, when Christ looks at each of us, he does not simply say mine, he also says home. Home. Christ in you. Paul pairs that language with this Language of the hope of glory, his presence now, his abiding in us by his spirit, assuring us of a future life with him. Going back to chapter one, verse five, the greatest hope laid up for us in heaven. As Christians, we have hope, the hope of a future glory. I'm not sure it's articulated any clearer than Paul's writing Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, where he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Here it is. Waiting for our blessed hope. What is that hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have hope, the hope of a future glory, the hope of a future with Jesus. Coming back to this morning's passage, a hope for both Jew and Gentile, verse 27, praise God. The riches of the glory of this mystery, Paul says. Paul declaring God's disclosing of his unfolding redemptive plan for the world through Christ. As he'll go on to say in chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus, the substance of the Old Testament shadows. We'll get there soon enough, and we'll do one of those 
fly by the seat of our pants, crash courses through the Old Testament and show Christ as the glorious fulfillment of of as much of it as we can in, in sermon form. But I'll leave that for another day. Suffice it to say, verse 28, Paul says, this Jesus, him we proclaim. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. My goodness, the vast number of churches that if they could just grab hold of verses 28 and 29 of chapter 1, what would be different in terms of the church landscape? Him we proclaim. The Lord Jesus Christ, creator, sustainer, redeemer. Going back to last week, what else is there to say? As if we could add our own lyrics to the great Colossian hymn of Christ. How silly. It's a song around which we'll spend the remainder of eternity trying to wrap our minds and hearts. It's the song of the gospel. What's God's strategy for making and maturing disciples? Verse 28. The proclaiming of Christ. Oh, the tragedy of the many churches that have overcomplicated it, that toil and struggle in the name of growth strategies that have little or nothing to do with Jesus, proclaiming him. For this I toil, Paul declares. I'm not going to suffer and die for gimmicks, for the next silly sermon series that says little to nothing about Jesus for busy, Christless church activity, for empty, ritualistic, hollow religion that has nothing to do with the Lord Jesus. The proclamation of Christ and him crucified, Paul says, that's where I'm staking my claim. If I'm gonna suffer for anything, it's gonna be for Jesus. It's how disciples are made. It's how disciples are matured. Paul says through both warning and teaching, he understands that there are two sides to this coin, that we're, we're always instructing, teaching, bringing this Jesus before each other. Also warning, because it's slippery slope, it's easy to get off the gospel path and veer into silly, irreverent myths, as I believe Paul says elsewhere in Scripture. And notice, If you skip ahead to chapter 3, verse 16, it's not the responsibility of a select few. It's not the role of the priest. It's not the role of the preaching pastor alone. Paul will go on to declare that that we're all to teach and admonish one another. It's the same exact Greek language there. That we all have a responsibility for making sure that this is a church in which and through which Christ is proclaimed. You know what excites me? That I I have no doubt in my mind that if I even began to creep away from Jesus for a single Sunday, I'd hear about it. Not going to happen around here. At the same time, Paul says, us fighting for this, for the proclamation of Christ and the culture of this in the church, is not something that just happens. For this we toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within us. If you're a part of our kids' ministry, for this you toil in our kids' ministry. 
If you're a part of our student ministry, for this we toil in our student ministry. For this I toil week in and week out in the preaching of God's word. For this James toils week in and week out in the pairing of the sung word. For this we toil each and every week in the formal gathering of our small groups. In the organic fostering of relationships with others. Every cup of coffee, every lunch that we meet up with people for. That's happening in this body. In our scattering for the sake of evangelism. For this we toil. Struggling, Paul says, with all his energy that he powerfully works within us. What is God happy to empower? Christ proclaimed. It's a strength that only he can supply and one that he's pleased to supply as we embrace the hard but noble, God-glorifying labor of proclaiming Jesus. I told you Paul wasn't going to let up off the gas pedal coming out of last week. He goes on in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, it was through the, the evangelistic efforts of Epaphras that the church in Colossae was established so that the Apostle Paul had never met these believers face to face. Neither those in Colossae nor in the, the nearby neighboring cities of Laodicea, Hierapolis, and, and others in the region. And yet Paul commits himself to struggling, he says, in prayer on their behalf. Prayers of intercession for brothers and sisters he had never met. The substance of those prayers, incredibly rich. Verse 2, hearts encouraged, comforted, and strengthened. Which comes, as you continue verse 2, as believers are knit together or bonded in love. Particularly when the competing voices would seek to divide and destroy. To unknit the church. The outworking of such encouragement and unity that we might reach all the riches, Paul says, verse 2, a full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In other words, the invaluable assur- a treasure of the blessed assurance that what we believe is true, particularly in regards to the person and work of Jesus. Sam Storms, in his commentary, says it this way. He says, Paul resists the temptation to cease praying. He strives and agonizes to overcome the listlessness of his physical frame and the alluring temptations of the devil. Why? Why this agonizing in in intercessory prayer? Because, he says, he wants the hearts of the folk to be strengthened for battle and bonded in love so that, here it is, in order that, so that they can be ever more assured of the truths of the faith and ever more entranced with the beauty and all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ ever more assured of the truths of the faith. Do we want that? Ever more entranced with the beauty and all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Do we want that? It's the outworking, Paul says, of spirit-empowered believers knit together in love, bonded in unity, committed to the hard but noble, God-glorifying labor of proclaiming Christ in whom are hidden, Paul says, verse 3, 
all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's not to say that a person can't know anything if he or she isn't a Christian. There are a lot of highly intelligent people standing on the outside of the faith. Rather, it's to say that true wisdom and knowledge of God's will is found in Christ. True wisdom and knowledge of God's purpose is found in Christ. True wisdom and knowledge of God's ways are found in Christ. Treasures of infinite worth, riches that can only be found in Jesus. Paul declaring these things so that believers might not be led astray. Look at verse 4. I say this in order that... There it is, explicitly, for the reason that, with the hope that, no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing that your good order and the firmness of your faith, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Many scholars believe that the false teachers in the region were claiming to have elite access to mysterious truths of God. Their arguments clothed in sophistication and eloquence, well-crafted and well-articulated. You see Paul talk about these kinds of things in the earliest chapters of 1 Corinthians. Those false teachers, their message, having a, a persuasiveness, as is oftentimes the case with some of the most dangerous of teachings that veer us off the gospel path. It's a reminder to us that that we should never let our guard down, no matter how commendable our faith in Christ may be. Paul declaring himself, though absent in body, to be present with these fellow believers by virtue of his union with them in Christ. Again, perhaps good argumentation that going back to that, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, just might have something uh, to do with this notion of, of our being so united in an abiding relationship with Jesus, that he counts our sufferings for the sake of the gospel as his very own. Here, Paul using the language of I in Christ, and you in Christ, therefore together, we in Christ. Speaks of a kind of intimate bond between believers that runs so much deeper than, than many of us truly understand or functionally deep down believe. Right? This takes the notion of, of us being siblings in Christ, brothers and sisters, takes it to a whole new level. United in union, abiding relationship with Jesus. We in Christ, therefore together in him. Paul praying for the Colossian church. That their good order and firmness of faith might continue, verse 5, that they might not be tossed into chaos and disorder by the, the waves of false teaching, rather steadfast and stable in their trust in Christ. Going back to 2020, the end of that calendar year, we had, we had run a, a, a discipleship environment that was something to the effect of, of helping people to be equipped to sit with their Bibles in front of them and study it well. And we had run that, I don't know, three, four, five times leading up to 2020. And, and each and every time there were anywhere from three to five people who would, who would attend, participate. And we were encouraged by that. It was baffling and mind-boggling um, at the end of 2020 
we ran that, that same uh, equip environment, and between the live stream and those present, we had, some, I can't remember the exact number, somewhere between 40 and 50 people. Because the, the, the target was always moving that year. Right? The, the, there was no steady beacon. What do I believe? What do I trust? What can I hang my hat on and count on it being true? After an entire year of absolute insanity, by God's grace, a number of people in our church said, how about the Bible? How about the gospel? How about Jesus? Good order, firmness of faith, no moving target there, no, no waves of chaos and disorder banging you left and right, to use that language of, I believe, Ephesians 4. Rather, there's a steadiness, a stableness, a, a firmness that comes in Christ, in the gospel, in God's word. Good order, firmness of faith, the outworking of fixing our eyes on Jesus in whom we have everything we could possibly need. Look nowhere else. He is the image of the invisible God going back to last week. The firstborn of all creation. The word through whom all of creation was spoken into existence. The purpose of the created order to bring him honor and glory. The one who keeps the cosmos from collapsing, disintegrating, governing all that he sustains toward its end for his ultimate glory. He's the head of the body, the church, through whom we derive our life, our nourishment, our growth as we hold fast to him, the head. He is the first fruits of the resurrection and the inheritance that await his beloved. He's the risen king, crowned with glory, preeminent in all things. The eternal God who without ceasing to be God became flesh that his body might be broken, his blood shed, his death securing a peace and reconciliation as vast as the cosmos and as intimate as your reconciliation to the living God through him. Him we proclaim. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.